From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. I'm Ken Ross, CEO and founder of Frost Incorporated. We are a sprayer manufacturer and also a spray technology-focused company for the leading edge of spray technologies out there. We're based in St. Croix Falls, Wisconsin, which is just outside of Minneapolis and St. Paul in Minnesota. It's always a wonderful day when I get to speak with Ken Rost about spray application technology, not only because he's the CEO of Frost Incorporated that supplies leading technology to the spray industry, well beyond golf turf, but because he's an expert and a thought leader in this area. Our conversations are usually informative and result in a good question, and I don't always get the answer I expect. And it's a good idea to question your stress management programs on the golf course these days. Research with the Plant Food Company programs has shown how proper nutrient management, use of plant defense activators, and biostimulants can enhance stress tolerance and maximize playability. The Plant Food Company has been providing innovative solutions since 1946, when the company was founded by Ed Platts and is still a family business. Their support of research and education nationally for the golf turf industry makes a difference every day. Don't take my word for it. Contact your local plant food rep and get more information. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Ken Ross. It's so nice to finally get a chance to chat with you that it's recorded and other people can hear how lively our conversations are. And I wanted to start by chatting with you about the founding and development of your company. You coming out with a master's in agriculture out of the University of Minnesota and then in the outdoor equipment industry for quite a while, certainly in the sales force. How did that lay the foundation and how did Frost Inc. come about, Ken? Sure. Well, first of all, Frank, thanks for having me on to talk to you again and to your listeners. And we always, like you say, enjoy our conversations. And it's fun when more people can listen along as we talk about some things in this space. Um, just a quick background. After leaving University of Minnesota, I worked in animal nutrition for a little while. And then I worked as a technical sales engineer, worked for a company called Hypro, which is now owned by Pentair. And they're a company that focused on the manufacture of components for sprayers, pumps, valves, nozzles, fittings of all sorts. I worked my way up through that company and finally left there after 15 years as the OEM and international sales manager. And basically what that meant is that I had responsibility for working with major OEMs of green, yellow, red, all colors, and also internationally. And I was able to be successful in that because I really paid attention to the systems involved in a sprayer. And I was always keen to the best technologies or newer technologies to make spraying more efficient, less burdensome, and more cost-effective. So I, I was able to, through that career, gather a lot of information from around the world in different environments, different crops. I was you know, able to do that successfully for over 15 years. Some of my roommates in college at the University of Minnesota on the St. Paul campus were in a turf grass program moved up into superintendent positions and would constantly tell me all kinds of stuff that they were doing and wanted to see improved in their industry. And so I started paying attention to that even back when I was with uh, Hypro Pentair and was looking for a career change after 15 years of that and saw an opportunity to start a business and really kind of tailor some of the background experience that I gained specifically for the golf and turf industry. 
So you start up Frost Incorporated, but it wasn't just for turf, right? It was for all types of horticultural turf applications, correct? Yeah, and with an agricultural background, there's always row crop that you know we're focused on and trying to serve customers in our regional areas, but also became very keen to some of the diverse crops out there, vineyards, uh, fruit growers, tree right. growers, right. etc. Right. So we you know, really been able to wrap that up into kind of all things spring. Okay. So as a student and a businessman in the spray application space with lifetime interest in it and wide experience in a lot of crops, you know, row crops and specialty horticulture crops like vineyards and, you know, small fruits and berries and golf turf applications, maybe sports field applications. How uh, would you characterize the state of the application technology that's currently utilized day-to-day in the golf turf industry compared to row crop and horticulture crops? Well, <laughs> there's, there's been... Uh... Ken, Ken, before you answer, <laughs> and just so everybody knows, Ken's from Minnesota, so he's going to have a really hard time, frankly speaking. And what I'm trying to get him to say is <laughs> we're behind the times here, so I'm going to lead you along here, Ken, so you don't have to be Minnesota nice all the time, uh, and, and you can tell us what you think. Sure. Well, basically, when I started Frost, going on, whatever, 15 years ago now, there was such a resistance to any kind of change from what people were doing. People were so convinced that what they had to do was put down two to three gallons per thousand of liquid at three, four miles an hour. The whole kitchen sink of chemistry is thrown into the tank, and you do this at that one rate across the course without variation. That's just how we do it. (laughs) And there's still some of that out there. I think that with some of the turnover in in superintendents and starting to see younger folks uh, move up into some of these positions, some of that traditional mindset is starting to change. But no, there is no industry that is more set in tradition on just the way we do things than the golf and turf industry. It's been a difficult industry to start our business in, but what I can tell you is that there is a sea change that is happening currently to see newer technologies that are going to make people more accurate, more efficient, more environmentally responsible, and ultimately safer for everybody as well. Thank you for saying that. That's exactly what I was suspecting was the case. And so I'm wondering now, for an industry that tries to pride itself on being a little bit progressive, I'm, I'm not entirely sure we, we are. We have a tough time, you know, bringing on sensors. We have a tough time using data still. I think there's more and more, when you say sea change, I'm wondering if you mean generational change. Is there something that's happening as superintendent turnover occurs the generations are changing, or is it even guys my age are, are willing and able to adopt these technologies? Are you, is it a generational thing, or is it really a mindset? Uh, I'm sure it's a combination of both. I'm not going to weight the percentages one way or the other, but guys as old as I am are still buying new technology phones and learning how to use them. So older generations can adapt to technology. That's a false premise that you know we can't adapt and change. On the other hand, the younger folks have more of an affinity to operating a piece of equipment that has an LCD screen on it. But, you know, the improvements 
aren't coming just from that perspective. I think the change that I'm referring to, the sea change, maybe not quite a, a, a tsunami, but it's a, it's, a, it's a little wave on the beach. There's other pressures that are contributing to it now. We've got labor issues, so we can't afford to have a high-value employee out spraying on a golf course for one and a half days when we know that there's another kind of equipment that we can get that done in a few hours. There's environmental pressures. There's cost balances. There's different products that are available now for different types of pesticide or insecticide type of application. So there's more pressures to make change than just what we see as the traditional problems to overcome. That's right. So there's drivers, right? I think people would say right. who study this thing, there's drivers. Drivers and some of them are social, some of them are environmental, uh, some of them are economic. And in the economic space, it's not that there maybe isn't money so much because really golf is sort of booming in many ways now. It's that there really aren't people and the labor resources to do these things. So let's talk for a minute about that expansive discussion about adoption of technology, right? That's what I was starting to lead towards mm -hmm. is, you know, how we go about this. And let's pick out the sort of trendiest one on that side that more and more you see these things coming about the GPS-based uh, application, right? Now, GPS mm -hmm. is, of course, going to make you more precise in area. And, and our work with you up at the Skinny Atlas Country Club showed, you know, just by geometry, uh, we were saving 17% uh, of our applied product just by spraying the, you know, exact areas that we wanted to. So most mm -hmm. of the time, uh, I would say most people are capitalizing on the on-off features, spraying the geometry or, and, you know, even, no matter whatever geometry they decide to spray, whether it's an approach program or a rough program. I'm more interested in, in hearing from you about what happens when they want to give it a try, they try to do it, and there's still some failings in the industry from many of the people who are providing this technology that it doesn't always work for these guys, right? I mean, it's one thing when you bring new technology to the marketplace and it tends to be prone to that broad brush, Ken, right? You know, oh, mm -hmm. I tried it, it didn't work. And so that stuff doesn't work compared to, well, maybe I didn't, wasn't doing this right or doing that right. Are we in that phase right now where we're still working out the kinks? And if so, or if not, how long until we get those kinks really worked out? Well, thankfully, I can say that with our systems, we have the kinks worked out. Our first systems went out in 2012, and it's not a hodgepodge of components from different vendors thrown together that we found a way to make work. I work specifically with a company called AirRag in Europe that developed the system as a basically a plug and play where each cable fits into each component, each component is designed specifically for what it does, and the reliability is there. Now, I mean, sure enough, you know, every once in a while something breaks or a diaphragm ruptures or whatever, but usually within 12 to 24 hours, even sometimes with just a phone call, we can get that system back up and running or get a part shipped out to them. But you're right, not all systems are the same. Uh, there are some systems that entered the market and now have left the market, some of which are using pulsing devices out on the boom. They're limited in flow, they're prone to plugging up, and they are not as reliable as the components that we're using. We're just using on and off devices. So the reliability is, is important. The biggest thing that people have problems with is the accuracy in the GPS 
uh, location, the receiver system mm -hmm. that is actually connecting to the satellites and telling the machine where it should be or where you should be or where it should or should not turn on or off nozzles. And I will say that since 2012, there's been about two or three major, major improvements in those systems. And those systems aren't things that Frost designs yeah. and develops. No, these are companies like you know, Novatel, which is a huge GPS satellite company, you know, works closely with the U.S. military, etc. They've developed receivers that have such faster processing power that the time to converge or make a, an error correction now is just a matter of seconds versus what was maybe 20 to 30 minutes five to 10 years ago. So that part of the technology has improved tremendously, and as that increases in its success and reliability, there's going to be more and more people recognizing that, trusting these systems more. Excellent. Okay, so listen, the next phase of this discussion goes into recognizing and capitalizing the real value of some of this technology that you mentioned at the get-go, which is Beyond on and off, it's this idea of variable rate applications, right? And I think as we really move to this phase, the ability to do variable rate applications is going to be important. So let me ask you a couple of questions about this. Number one, obviously, the GPS device that controls application equipment has the ability to do it. And let's start there before I ask you about direct injection technology, because I have a particular fascination with that application approach. But let's just start with the variable rate stuff. Do you have enough customers uh, and people using variable rate stuff out in the field to get a sense of its effectiveness and utility to the average golf superintendent? I'd say in our customer base, there's probably a dozen out of several hundred that are actively using variable rate methodology, and they've adapted to it. One of the drawbacks to variable rate is that, you know, if you're putting the kitchen sink in your tank and you want variable rate for a main product, but you don't want it for a secondary product, you're going to have to separate those out into two different applications. And for the most part, our customers that are doing this don't have a problem doing that. They can go out and do the applications fairly quickly, and they'll do a variable rate with fungicide or something like that, and then they'll go back out and they'll do all their PGRs with you know non-variable rate. So that's the biggest drawback, and that probably is what leads your thought train into direct injection yes. opportunity. See, see, Ken, great minds think alike, right? <laughs> so I know I asked you about this once before. And you gave me a really terse answer about, well, when you can figure out how to get guys to spray at a certain rate, I'll be <laughs> able to do that. <laughs> and so I want to give you a chance to publicly admonish me again uh, for asking for direct injection technology. First off, why don't you take a minute and describe it to everybody? Because not everybody might be familiar with what this concept is, but it, it is fairly widely used in agriculture. Correct. And for instance, a lot of parks, city, municipalities, whatever, use direct injection as well, because in their cases, they don't want to transport mixed chemistry all around their town. Instead, they have a large tank with a carrier, i.e. water. And then they have an injection pump that's introducing a percentage of concentrate into that carrier prior to it being distributed out to the boom. Also in agriculture, we've been doing it for quite a number of years. The drawbacks that we have is there's a balance between accuracy and having direct injection because 
if you inject the liquid upstream of, say, like a filter before it goes out to the nozzles, you're going to get good mixing. But there's going to be a lag time between when that injection amount, especially in the case of a variable rate, if there was a change, there's going to be a lag time. And that lag time is going to be expressed in X number of feet of distance that is not properly applied. Am I ex- explaining that well enough? Absolutely right. Yes. I mean, the I, you, you basically have to make sure the system is primed with the full rate of the product while you're driving over what it is you want to spray. So what you're saying is on the fly, there might be a lag time as you're driving where the optimum Mm -hmm. rate of the product is being applied. Now, can that be moderated at all by injecting it at the nozzle? Well, in fact, we did that with uh, even back when I was with Hypro Pantera with a major OEM, and it does affect the lag time. Of course, it shortens it because it's a more immediate change response. But what we also found is that the distribution or the mixing in the carrier was severely compromised. Mm. So it's a trade-off. And, you know, finding the sweet spot in between is probably not hard if you're willing to make and understand the sacrifices on both ends. Okay. So this is then the perfect foray, Ken, into the last part of our conversation, which is, as you described so well last time I I think we talked, was jumping the shark right into a drone application of chemicals. So can you talk for a minute about, in general, what you've had to do to have the ability to apply chemical pesticides and fertilizers through a drone? And then we'll talk about how it works and sort of logistically the advantages it offer. But let, let's start out with sort of conceptually what's got to get done to make this happen nowadays. Okay, well, specifically answering that question, first of all, you have to have two licenses from the FAA, and it's all under the FAA federal code, and then they're all listed under what are called parts or parts of the code. First off, each pilot has to have what's called Part 107, which is unmanned vehicle license, Anyone that flies a drone for anything other than pure hobby use needs to have that license. So if you're even being paid to take pictures for a real estate agent or something like that, you need to have the 107, Part 107 license. So that's one license. And then you also have to have a higher level license in order to do liquid applications called Part 137. So those are two main ones from the FAA. Then for any state that you operate in, obviously you have to have the pesticide applicator license, depending on the letter codes for your state. But also in each state, there is an aerial applicator's license. And so you also have to take those licenses in order to be able to drone spray. Okay. So now you've got, you're fully certified to apply materials in a particular category, apply them through an aerial application, and then be capable of having passed the certifications for a pilot's license, and 137 is a liquid application license. So now let's talk about just simple uh, nuts and bolts. How big are these units and how much liquid do they carry and how much general area can they cover before they've got to come back and, and fill up? How much land, How much acreage can they spray with the tank size that you put them up with? Well, some of the typical rates that we're applying are a lot less than what a lot of golf and turf application rates are. We're making applications in a two to four gallon per acre rate. Drill that down into gallons per thousand, I guess. But 
two to four gallons per acre. The tank on one of the drones that we're flying is two and a half gallons. We can basically apply one to 0.5 acres with that tank load. That tank load takes anywhere from a minute to 90 seconds to empty out. Drone comes back, refill it, send it back out again. So basically the total overall productivity is anywhere from 10 acres per hour to 14 acres per hour. And the other question that a lot of people ask, well, you know, how long does the battery last, etc.? We change the battery after every two application flights. So if it goes out and does one tank load, we'll bring it back, we'll fill it up, and then uh, send it out for the next tank load. And then we pull that battery. And we keep a cycle of batteries going with the generator so we can actually fly continuously. Okay. So this is, this is, <laughs> I just love this conversation. And I want to end up, Ken, I'll get you out of here on this. While you're applying, I'm wondering how much thought you've given to using some of these things that you're doing for data acquisition. I, I know one of the things I was really impressed about with your spray systems when we were working with it with Skinny Atlas was the ability to really have a nice collection of data of what I just did, the area, everything is there that tells me what I need to know, how fast I sprayed it, the areas that were covered, all those things. Do you see the ability to collect data from these drone devices when you're going out there doing this stuff uh, as much as making the application? Uh, right now, the only as-applied information that we get is off from the map of the execution of the job on the drone. We're not using the same drones for doing any kind of vegetative index work at all. Typically, we use a separate drone. We can use satellite data and then sensors that can be put on mowers. You know, those are the best data collection type of tools and other data too. You know, your groundwater moisture sensors, compaction data, any data that you can collect will help you make better agronomic decisions. And that's just basically going to affect the rates that you're applying. Now, I will say that the rates that we're applying with the drone being so much less than a typical ground rig, it's not for every product. But what we're finding, because we're doing some work with Bayer and some other companies that are having us use the drone for spraying, and they're actually working on formulating products for low-volume applications, both in agriculture and in turf. So they're, they're aware that this is on the horizon, and they're going to actually be specifically formulating and creating labels to allow for this uh, type of application. Last question, Ken. Spraying from the air... Obviously, you know, we always have optic issues on golf courses. I wonder if anybody's talked a lot about drift with you or your experience with drift with these things. And I know when I asked this from you before, you said, well, the uh, propellers also push the material down. You know, it's really high active ingredient rate, you know, very low water rate. You know, spray volume that you're spraying in is, is really low. How does that approach to application deal with the potential for drift being in the air? Drift is so much a factor of droplet size. It's incredible, the correlation to droplet size. And, and for good reason, you know, the ASABE developed the standards, uh, ISO adopted them, and it's real. We use air induction nozzles on the drone and having droplet sizes that are 300 to 600 micron, those droplets are going where they need to go. 
And even with the rotor wash off the drone, I mean, we have tested uh, for giggles, you know, put on some lower droplet size nozzles. And all that happened is the rotor wash came around and basically coated the drone with the product. And when you use the low drift nozzles or air induction nozzles, none of that happens. The droplet size is really the key for, for drift control. It's the same as if you were out spraying with a ground rig in windy conditions. Nothing's going to control that drift more than that droplet size. How high off the ground are you when you spray, Ken? On turf applications, we're comfortable spraying it, you know, two, three feet off the ground. Um, if it's really, you know, a lot of topography, we'll probably elevate it. But there is on our drones a radar with uh, obstacle avoidance, and that will protect the drone from running into anything. It won't pick up a flag stick on a green. So, you know, you can run into that, but, you know, if you prepare and you pull those flag sticks, you're not going to have that problem. Absolutely. Last question. Spraying at night. One of the things that I like about a lot of the GPS-driven and more automation coming to the industry is the possibility that uh, it, we can capitalize on evening hours. Uh, you know, we don't get to work for a fair amount of time. we got to rush out there in the morning and daylight. And I wonder how much you think this autonomy and the use of drones uh, might work in applying in the evening? Well, the FAA did just revise the rules here this spring that we can fly at night as long as we have a strobe on the drone. And I see that as a big window of opportunity for getting some things done. Now, you know, you still have to have a, a pilot in line of sight of that drone and still needs to have some situational awareness of, of what's being applied and where. Um, that's not going to change, but uh, definitely some of this work can be done in the dark. Ken, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's I feel like we could keep doing it for another 40 minutes, but I like to keep these nice and tight, and you are absolutely perfect at giving me nice, quick, short answers to these uh, sometimes stupid questions. But I think it's a lot of questions that are out there when this technology you know, starts to be discussed. Uh, and based on your history with the resistance that we've had in this industry, uh, I can tell you uh, I'm rooting for you to fight the good fight and continuing to convert people that, you know, more data is a good thing. More technology can be a good thing uh, if we learn to onboard it into our industry effectively. Well, thanks, Frank. And, uh, you know, I, I want people to know that we don't know everything. We're learning every day. And what we want is we want interested superintendents out there that are interested in this technology or any of these technologies to share with us what your hurdles are, what things you want to solve out there. And can any of these tools that we talked about today help with that? And we want to find the situational justification for pursuing them and, and growing them. So our phone lines are open, our emails are open. We love to hear from superintendents that have these ideas and love to work with them. Thanks very much, Ken. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Frank. I can't help but think innovative solutions are what this industry is all about. And in my mind, one of the key innovations of the last decade is the Dryjack Sand Injection Service. Dryjack services offer unique soil management tactics not available in a single machine. Science has demonstrated the benefit of water injection cultivation, and sand channel injection offers a unique opportunity to break through any restricting layers in your soil profile. This keeps the water flowing through and plenty of air in the root zone. 
Dryject is a flexible and affordable service used by many of the great golf courses in the U.S. I have personally seen the value of this practice, and now with the ability to inject non-dried sand at several depths, it offers even more advantages. Contact your local Dryject service representative or visit dryject.com. Okay, Derek Settle, thanks so much for taking the time to join me on Frankly Speaking. Welcome back to the Midwest. I'm not in the Midwest, but I know from my many years of traveling out there, you you spent some time there before and off to bear you went and now you're back. I guess the simple question is, how'd that happen? Well, I guess I realized my best job was my first job. That was Chicago, working for the Chicago District Golf Association based in Lamont, Illinois. Kind of a unique position. At the time, I was here before 380 member clubs, and today they're up to 400. They're all packed in kind of tightly, so you can do a lot of really good stuff just because you, you know what the weather's going to kind of be for everybody. Um, and then we did a lot of diagnostic work. So I'm a plant pathologist by training as well as a nematologist. And I followed in the footsteps of Randy Kane. So I'm really glad to be back after 20 years of, uh, or actually 10 years. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's just a unique position. It's a really cool place uh, to work. Chicago, obviously, if you're into golf has uh, some pretty significant history here as well. Yeah. And so let, let me just take a minute. And, and so I'm not sure everybody knows about this because I'm so old. Uh, you know, I remember when Randy Kane was getting there on the heels of the uh, bent grass decline, uh, bacterial wilt right. of the vegetative bent grasses back in the 1980s, right? And so right. that devastation led the District Golf Association to investing in a position that turned to be, and Randy was the first person to inhabit it, of course, course, we'll claim Randy Kane for the big red here, right? Randy and Hank Wilkerson are, are students of Dick Smiley, who preceded me right. uh, back in the 80s, right? So so I got a long history. And if we could get Randy on the cannon string in Maine, maybe he'll listen to this shout out uh, and get off the <laughs> you have blueberry. have to get him out of bed first. <laughs> get, get off the blueberry patch uh, that he's on out there, right? So, so anyway, the background of this thing was to really help superintendents with these sort of crisis kinds of problems, which turned out to be a lot of diagnostic work, but it also over the years has evolved to include uh, a fair amount of research. Now, I don't want to go down the research end. What I want to do is talk about the diagnostic stuff and let's talk about the, you know, you're back in the saddle. Uh, It's been a tricky year in the Midwest. You guys have had periods of, of profound dry times and then times when the rains have come again. And, you know, you've done a great job of journaling about it uh, so many of us can read about it. But let's talk about how the season's gone so far for you, uh, growing grass in Chicago. Yeah, so they started talking to me in April about coming back. In those negotiations, I figured the most I could put off would be June 1st, right? Because I'm thinking, I know the weather. And it turned out in April in that spring period, it was super dry. They had record dry conditions. And then you fast forward to my arrival in June and things are kind of going okay. We're still pretty dry. And then suddenly we have about a week of just extreme wet conditions. Um, and it was constant. Um, and guys received between six and eight inches of rain. Uh, in Chicago, that's, that's always a bad thing. We don't have, um, we have, you know, great Midwest soils. They're all clay based. And so, uh, drainage is always a big issue, so you're going to have some flooding. Um, so right off the bat, you know, the first disease I see really kind of take hold of pythium blight. So that was a surprise, uh, and that did kind of snap 
snapped me back into focus. And really, that's what this job is all about. It's, it's helping guys kind of understand what the conditions are about to produce and trying to be ahead of it with uh, communications um, and also, you know, on-site diagnostic assistance. And it's all free of charge. The only thing that has to happen is it has to be a member club. So again, we have about 400 member clubs. So immediately I start, you know, getting calls. You go out on site, you look at stuff, and very quickly, you know, you become an expert of of really golf greens in the cool season uh, realm of things. But it's a wonderful job. And then the next part of that, obviously, is you have to figure out how to communicate that. And then finally, you mentioned it, research. So usually along the way through these uh, different growing seasons, you'll see some issues that we don't fully understand. It could be a new disease. It could be a chronic disease, or it could just be something that they're trying to do, and they have some issues, and we got to figure out some, some new ways. So it's just a really cool job. Obviously, not one person can do it. So back in the day, Randy started this on his own in 85. He was based in Oak Brook in actually an office facility. They moved everything down to Lamont in a huge golf house across the street from Cog Hill in about 2004, 2005. And at that point, he had a second position created, and that was when Lee Miller worked alongside Randy for a few years. And that's really when the research took off. That second position really focuses then on research. The primary person is obviously doing the diagnostics and the communication and the education. Something now I have to do is find a second position and person and fill it. Well, in the meantime, let's talk about what's, what I've seen happening in, in the Chicago area over the last several years just prior to your arrival, and that is a lot of winter damage and renovation that's led to a lot more bentgrass surfaces that are there probably from when you left, either bentgrass yeah. fairways or bentgrass greens. What's one of the things you're noticing now coming back, seeing more bentgrass surfaces, comparing bentgrass to Poet today? Because it seems like... You know, the bent grasses of 10, 15 years ago are are not as good as even the ones we have now. Can you talk for a minute about some of those differences that you're starting to note already? Yeah, I think if you were to talk to Randy, the history of this position, greens back in the 80s were obviously all pretty much POA bent. A lot of these golf courses at the high-end private clubs, they um, actually started their lives about the turn of the century. Um, So you're talking about push-up greens. So, So probably didn't have the greatest drainage. Um, The root zones were obviously heavier. So Randy's job back in those days really focused on diseases like anthracnose. I mean, that was always a huge issue. Also, you have to think about uh, we had limited fungicides, too, that were available. And likely, too, those that were good were sometimes, you know, heavy growth regulating things like DMI. So today, when you think about what's happened, you know, now you're right. We've got not just all bent grass greens, and that all began about 2005, I'd say, when they started renovating um, the greens. So they're doing complete renovations. That means, you know, now you've got drainage, you've got a USGA root zone. Since that time, we're seeing a progression now of some of these newer fence, which I'm not even fully educated on, but basically things have really changed. Now you've got in Chicago greens that I would say from course to course are probably more consistent than they've ever been. Also, I would say the superintendents have changed. Now we've got a lot more younger guys in the field with fresh education. And so I would say that's also something that you begin to see is that there's a lot of newer ways of doing things than you probably would see years ago. So in summing summing all of this, I'd say now our greens course to course are much more consistent and trouble-free. Poe is gone, so now you're not talking about the anthracnose. The drainage is now great, so now uh, not so much of the other stuff. 
you know, that would be associated with that. So I'm not saying it's smooth sailing, but it's a lot better than it used to be for sure. What about uh, in that transition, Derek, that's happening among the superintendents? Are you seeing more and more, again, you know, having that nice comparison from when you were there to when you are there now, obviously there were barely any use of predictive modeling back then. I mean, you you sort of talked about, everybody talked about the disease triangle and knew that the environment mattered. And there might have been, you know, there were models out there that we were using at Cornell forecast for a while, but they really haven't seen widespread use until more recently. Are you seeing them being adopted more uh, coming back 10 years later? Yeah, I, I think so. I think the one significant change is instead of everybody basing their timings on the calendar, you know, I mean, that's an acceptable way to do it. But year to year, the weather can be very different. And I'd say now we're seeing a lot more uh, volatility in our weather. So you would have to be stupid, really, to not use weather modeling today to help you uh, as a grower, I'd say one of the best examples is it usually helps them understand when to initiate their preventive program. Something like Dollar Spot this year is a good example because we were super dry in the spring. Um, I'm trying to do research on Dollar Spot, but we're still not getting much development. So at North Shore Country Club, for example, I have no Dollar Spot in my study on a fairway, number eight. And so if you were to tell somebody, you know, that that was going to be the case, um, they wouldn't have believed you and they probably would have started their, their program months earlier. So if you're using modeling, it does help you in odd years. And this has been one of those examples. I want to ask you, because you mentioned you're a nematologist, I've got my own little sarcastic, as a New Yorker, Derek, I'm a bit sarcastic about some things that happen in this industry. And since you're a nematologist, I'll ask you about, you know, nematodes. Um, I found it ironic a bit that we were doing a lot of nematode testing when the two big companies released new nematicides. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that a couple of years down the road from the release. Do we really think we have epidemic nematode problems or has all the surveying revealed that we still don't really know the extent of this issue? So, you know, you have to realize when I left Chicago and joined Bayer, they moved me and they moved me to Florida. One of the things you have to begin to understand about nematodes, it's way, way different when you go down to Florida and you're along the, the southeast uh, coast of Georgia and the Carolinas. That's native sandy soils, and Florida really, the way I think of it, it's a giant sandbar. So you're ground zero for nematodes, but not just any nematodes. Um, you've got sting, which basically is the biggest. And so I always say that's like the anaconda of nematodes in the soil. It doesn't really have a damage threshold, so that means if it's present, you're going to have some issues sooner or later during the growing season, and they just annihilate roots. And down in the south, too, we've now, you know, if you think about ultra-dwarf Bermuda grass, it's still a relatively new grass, and it's ultra-dwarf above ground and below ground. So it's almost like a poa grass as far as the roots go. So in other words, it has really no tolerance. And so the problem you have down there is giant nematodes, and then you have root knot too, and it's not a good situation. They have to use nematicides. You have to be on the ball. You're going to always be taking samples. When you get to the north, it's different because now cool season and you're not in these native sandy soils typically where these big guys are. So when you come up here, there's really no sting. And so that's a huge 
difference. And so that's one of the main reasons why you always hear tons of stuff about uh, nematodes in the south and not so much in the north. But in the north, we do have some. Lance was the one I studied at Kansas State University in bent grass. Problem with that is, as you mentioned, you're skeptical. You know, the books would tell you 150 was the damage threshold, and and really what my work showed is you have to be like seven or 800. To get populations that high can happen, but they're very isolated in a green. So because cool season grasses just have an ability to tolerate uh, root-fitting nematodes, if you think about it, they're just, when temperatures are cool, they can really grow roots. You can have a lot of nematodes and never see it. Only time you might have an issue would be midsummer, and that's kind of where you've got midsummer physiological declines. You've got natural root loss because of heat. Then you might be talking about nematodes, but... You know, it's in this period right before it gets hot, so it's the transition between July and August. If you miss that moment of sampling and you sample later, well, then what happens is the nematode populations are going to crash. They then follow the root uh, dynamics, so it becomes really hard to understand. And finally, I would say, as far as the damage thresholds go, they're really no good. Um, and the reason is, is every lab is going to have a different extraction efficiency. Also, again, as I mentioned, the books have these hard, fast numbers, and so you learn that in, in Turf 101, and it's just that's not good information. It's too general, and it's really meaningless. So today, if you're going to actually do a good job to figure out if you have a problem on a green, you're going to take a sample from an area where you think there might be an issue and then a sample not too far away where it's healthy and take a look and just see, you know, is there actually a hot spot or a you know, very dense population of nematodes versus uh, the healthy, and, and that's usually the way we do it. So it's sort of like a site-specific recommendation. And even if you have 18 greens, think about it. If you've got healthy greens, even if you have high populations, their life is good. There's usually going to be good tolerance. So you're only talking about those three septile greens that have a rough life. That would be most likely where these nematodes could be a problem. But again, in cool season turf, it's just going to be for that brief moment prior to the mid-summer uh, stress. Derek, let me, on behalf of everybody in Chicago and cares a lot about the superintendents in there, thank you very much for your service back to the CDGA, for coming back and doing this work, and for taking the time to join me to chat about this. It's so great to hear your voice again. Welcome back to the Midwest, and I hope we get to do this again sometime. Thanks, Frank. I appreciate it, and I'm, I'm glad to be back. Enhancing stress tolerance is essential for every golf course superintendent. Civitas Turf Defense from Intelligro combines two compounds with demonstrated ability to activate plant defenses, assist with the control of insects and diseases, as well as increase stress tolerance. Many of you know I'm not one to feign praise on a product without data. Civitas Turf Defense has performed successfully in hundreds of research trials. Sounds too good to be true, and yet the science and experience in the field is solid in support of the programmatic use of Civitas, an OMRI-listed product that allows for reduction in pesticide, nutrient, and water use. Learn more about Civitas Turf Defense, available from a variety of distributors throughout the U.S. and Canada in pre-mixed and ready-to-mix formulations, or visit CivitasTurfDefense.com.
Time for promoting another great organization near and dear to my heart, the We One Foundation. It's named for the former superintendent and longtime leader in the turf industry, Wayne Otto. I knew Wayne during my years at UW-Madison when he was at Ozaki Country Club. Wayne was a no-nonsense, plain-spoken grass grower who loved playing golf, talking golf, being around golf, and of course, manicuring his golf course. Wayne left us too soon in 2004, and Rod Johnson and some friends created the foundation to support golf course management professionals that incur overwhelming expenses due to medical hardship without comprehensive insurance or adequate financial resources. Luke Sella is the executive director of the We One Foundation. Welcome, Luke. Thanks for joining me. Let's start with some basics about the We One Foundation, mission, vision, and some of the great impact numbers of money and folks you've assisted. Sure. So for those of you that don't know that haven't heard about the We One Foundation, we've been around since uh, 2004. And it was aptly named after a good friend of many in the turf industry, Wayne Otto. He passed away from pancreatic cancer, and it was during that time he was fighting the cancer. His friends got together and did a fundraiser for him so he could seek some alternate uh, treatments that at that time weren't available in this country. And like I said, uh, Wayne had passed away shortly thereafter, but you know there was a few dollars left over in the coffers, and his friends got together and, and thought, well, what could we do with this money? And lo and behold, another uh, superintendent got ill with actually the same same disease, and um, another fundraiser was started for him. And you know, 18 years later, here we are with I don't know how many fundraisers we hosted since then, but, you know, I can tell you the impact that we've made has just been tremendous in the golf industry. Well, let's just talk about that for a second, Luke. Let's not blow the lead here, pal. How many folks have you helped and how much money have you raised? We've gifted over $1.8 million. Over 200 individuals have been helped, uh, 200 families. The thing is, Frank, their stories range when I speak about illness and sickness, uh, you know, nobody ever asks for it. Nobody ever asks to get sick. And uh, the way things are in this country, when somebody is stricken with a serious illness, oftentimes there's so many different factors going on in their life, just trying to figure out treatment, next steps, you know, trying to get referrals, recommendations, and then all of a sudden they're, you know, working with insurance companies and whether they're going to pay and not, and the financial burden can sometimes be very troublesome. So that's where the We One steps in, and they, they make these gifts. They verify a need, they make a gift, and they get the money to the people that need it and you know, trust that they're using those dollars in the best way possible. So, so how does somebody in this industry access this resource? Let's say you know, you're the 201st or 205th person you, you want to help. How does a superintendent go about accessing it? It's for management professionals in the industry on the superintendent side, and it's as easy as going to we1.org and filling out a form. It'll come right to our office, and we get that out to our committee, and then they, they go through the vetting process. It's a decent-sized industry, but it's not that big. We seem to know a lot of people across the way, and you know we like to make sure that there is a need. and It doesn't preclude anyone from filling it out for themselves either. Okay. I would think, you know, that's a lot of money and a lot of people, you know, maybe some guys are saying, well, you know, I only need a little bit and maybe people need it more. I'm assuming need is, you know, sometimes you just need a few thousand bucks. Sometimes you need a hundred thousand bucks. You guys don't discriminate. Obviously, you're limited by how much you have. Maybe no need is too small or too big. You want to hear from people. We do because it varies all over the place. You know, you have different deductibles. Sometimes it's not even going towards a true medical expense, but it may be offsetting some travel expenses where somebody's going and getting treatment across the country, and they have to pay their own airfare, and they have to pay their own hotels, and they have to pay for 
child care and everything else going on in their life, or maybe even a mortgage payment. You know, these are all the things that people don't think about when they get ill and when they get sick, but those are the things that weigh people down and For sure. and sometimes just inhibit them from thinking and getting the care that they need and start the healing process. And never mind the fact this isn't an easy job. It's a relentless job uh, during the summer, uh, particularly in the north and during the winter in the south. I wonder if you couldn't speak to a little bit about how maybe worse this has been or impacted by the pandemic over the last 18 months or so. Is, have the needs been greater or has it pretty much just been steady? You know, uh, Frank, the needs have gone up a little bit. And unfortunately, some of our fundraisers have gone down. You know, our ability to raise funds has always been tied directly to our events that we host throughout the country. That's been the hard part. You know, it's always been their attitude that if there's money in the bank and there's people that need those dollars, let's get those dollars to the people. You know, as much as we like to sit and plan for the future, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. And if we can help somebody today, you know what? We're going to worry about tomorrow, tomorrow, as far as refilling those coffers or making more money. And in the 16 years that I've been helping out the We Won't Foundation, it's always worked out. There's always been someone or some group that has stepped up or something that has occurred that helps us to push that money to where it needs to be. I'll give you a perfect example. I don't know if you followed Matt Henkel at all on Twitter. Mm-hmm. He was uh, suffering from brain cancer earlier this year, and I think he had about a 13-year battle with it. And the wee one had gifted some dollars to him and to his family over the years. He was seeking treatments in California earlier this year. They were very research-oriented, and it was kind of a a last effort. And the wee one stepped up to help him. Well, unbeknownst to us, one of his last requests before he passed away was to his family and to his friends to do an outing for the wee one Foundation which the family and his the golf course that he was at hosted. And I just went out there late last week and picked up a check for $13,000. I saw the picture and, yeah. you know, it makes me also mindful of some other organizations. Sometimes I think what the We One Foundation has done is even motivate associations to do it for their own. Uh, Are you familiar with a couple of associations that are doing it more locally? And are you working with those groups a little bit to support them? Because obviously you guys have learned a lot in 16 years. And sometimes those needs could even be served locally a little bit easier. Can you speak to that a little bit? You know, Frank, there's a few that I know of. Some of the other local chapters that either have their own type of foundation or their own give back. You know, I certainly help them wherever I can. I would ask that they join the forces with the We One. I think we're, as an organization, stronger if we're all together in this because of some of our support mechanisms where we go out and look for sponsors. We don't discriminate. If a group has their own foundation or whatever, and if that person needs more help, we'll step up. It has not been an issue in the past. It just seems like they do not have the resources that the We One has and has come to get. Uh, just from our, our grassroots growth. It's something that we're, we're certainly willing to help out if we can. Okay, so the last part uh, is the uh, fundraising part, right? You can't do the good work without raising the funds. And we've had guests on before who talk about how generous the golf industry can be. Uh, a lot of us like to play golf, and so it makes sense when you have a tournament to get everybody out and raise some funds. Uh, I understand my old pal Rod Johnson at Pine Hills is hosting another one. Can you talk a little bit about the fall fundraiser? Sure. Actually, we had to move it up a week. Uh, normally, we hold it the 
third week in September. This year, because of the Ryder Cup, we had to push it up to the 13th of September, and Rod's going to host it again at, at Pine Hills, which for those of you that have never been on those grounds or part of those greens, it's a treat. They've done some tremendous work there the last couple of years, and every time we go back to the golf course, there's a new vista, new view. It's just a fantastic place, and it does a great draw from certainly from Wisconsin, from Illinois, Iowa, Michigan, Indiana superintendents and staff that will go there and kind of make it a year-end, you know, at least a season-end event. We'll get 100, you know, 60 to 180 players. Uh, sometimes we'll even push it to 200 players. <laughs> Just a, a great fundraising day where people come out. There's not really a hurry. Golf is kind of ancillary. It's just a great way to celebrate uh, the work of the foundation. Another season every, under everybody's belt, and uh, you know, way to come together and help others with troubles. Really, yeah. So, so let's uh, do the specifics one more time. H- how does the registration work and the date and stuff like that? Everything's online, uh, wewon.org, uh, September 13th, Pine Hills Golf Club in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. A great event with folks from uh, from all over the Midwest. So what about folks wanting to do their own tournaments? Is it as easy as contacting you and setting it up for the mechanism to work to funnel the money? Yeah, and we'll work with anyone, Frank, on any different level as far as what they need, you know, from running the whole event to using our website for registrations. We've got uh, an event coming up in October in Georgia. We'll do the registration form. There's a committee on the ground there that kind of takes care of everything at the facility uh, with the event. And, you know, we help to market it. Mm-hmm. And they'll go through the local chapter, the Georgia Superintendents Association, and market to their folks and pick up sponsors and, and registrants. And, you know, we kind of take care of all the admin behind the scenes. Excellent. All right. Last question, then I'll let you go. One of the things uh, about helping people in need sometimes, uh, especially financially, is that you know, maybe there's some pride involved. Maybe there's like, you know, you know, I feel bad taking it or shame or whatever. Sure. You know, obviously friends see that someone needs help. Maybe they're not able to ask for the help and they nominate them to get the help. But sometimes that can be a little bit tricky. What do you say to folks uh, in those situations sometimes trying to make sure people know, we, you know, we really want to help you here. We know it might be hard for you to take it, but you need the help. Take this. Yeah. Tell me about that. I see that, Frank. I mean, you know, we never ask individuals to, you know, stand up and talk about us. You know, we don't even advertise who we give money to. You know, what I guess what I'm saying is everything is kept in confidence. It's not something that, you know, the we one has ever felt that there's a need to do to to think from the mountaintops of what we do. Excellent. The word travels. It's a close enough community that, you know, the people that know we're helping know we're helping. That's right. If somebody does need it, you know, let us know. And that's one of the things that we really strive to do and, you know, share that message. Don't assume that you think that we want to know is that because somebody's sick in your, your area, please reach out to us. It should be as quick as an email. Uh, the contact information, again, is on the website. And, you know, just ask if, if we've heard of this person or, if, you know, if there's a request in process. And if there isn't, I can walk them through the steps. Thanks very much for taking the time to join me, Luke. It's always good to hear from you, and I really appreciate you being devoted to this foundation for such a long time. I know Wayne and Rod and everybody's, Wayne would be proud, and I'm sure Rod and the board and Danny and everybody else are really happy to have you around. So thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the good work. You bet, Frank. Thanks for having me again today. Really appreciate that.
Big thanks to Ken Ross, Derek Settle, and Luke Seller, a true Midwestern trifecta. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Jijek, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The Plant Food Company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability for 40 years. And Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management John Kiger, graphic design Nicole Rossi, theme music Tucker Rossi, and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me. Thank you.